0: you have your Bible, please open with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. If you don't have a heart or have a Bible with you, it should be a hardback black one somewhere around you. Um, can't recall what page number that is, but it's in your bulletin. Let's see. Page eight. Or eleven or something. It's in there somewhere. You'll find it. it's towards the beginning of the Bible. All right, so last week's sermon was meant to be one one sermon or one last week's sermon was one sermon. You know what I mean? Last week we were supposed to cover Genesis twelve through twenty-two. I got through to basically chapter seventeen because we just went through Genesis fifteen. Uh, jumping around a little bit. And so this week is supposed to be Genesis 17 through 22. But I started going through things and trying to take my notes from last week and adapt them to be one sermon this week. And I just kept seeing so much in Genesis 17. So technically the sermon is Genesis 17 through 22. But if I had the guess, we probably will not make it through anything but Genesis 17. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, part of the problem was last week I gave you a good 20-minute introduction on uh, everything we went over so far. I can't keep doing that. No, I really want to. So let me see if I can just steal 20 minutes down to about two. What we've seen so far as we've been walking through God's Word is uh, Adam and Eve and how God created Adam in covenant with him. And God blessed Adam, put him in the garden, called him to be faithful, and he failed. And yet, instead of just responding with covenant curses, though he did, God also responded by establishing a covenant of grace with Adam. And the reason he did that is because all of that grace flowed from the covenant of redemption that God had made in eternity past within the triune Godhead. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, knowing that mankind would sin against them if they created them, and God did, knowing that would happen, Jesus pledged to provide our redemption for us by living, dying, and rising again to save sinners like us. So instead of just responding with wrath and fury, God responds with grace because the plan before the beginning of time has been to magnify God's glorious grace in Christ through not only God's creating action, but through his redeeming action in and through the gospel of his son. And so we see that immediately begin to take place in Genesis 3.15. And then God promises there, through the offspring of Eve, to provide a savior. And so very quickly we see that There is going to be tension and even warfare that happens between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. But what's interesting is the offspring of serpent is not merely talking about humanity against snakes, though I'm convinced that's a real battle. And uh, that's why we have shotguns. But not only that, he's talking about mankind dead in their trespasses and sins in submission to the evil one. And that's all of us outside of God's grace in Christ. That we were dead in our trespasses under the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2 verses 1-3 through tells. us. And so, within the family of Adam and Eve, you have both the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. And we see that, first and foremost, with Cain and Abel. Cain according to 1 John chapter 3 is of his father, the evil one, though he's from Adam and Eve. But he shows the evil of his heart and his roots as he slays his own brother, Abel. But this brings up uh, a lot of uh, worry and anxiety within the story of redemption because you had Cain and you had Abel. You had good and you had evil. And yet, good, Abel, is snuffed out by Cain. He's murdered. And so the question arises, is God going to make good on his promises? Will God's gospel promises fail? Or will the Savior come? Well, then we see God gives Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And Seth proves to be of his mother. And following in the godly line that comes from the covenant of grace established with Adam and Eve we see that covenant of grace established. God gives the promise of a Savior, and Adam responds to that promise by naming his wife Eve, which means the mother of all living. So he believes God's promise, that God is going to provide a way of life and a Savior who gives life through his wife Eve. And so that's why God responds to Adam by covering Adam and Eve's sin through animal sacrifice, pointing forward, to the old ultimate sacrifice Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior right in Christ alone as we just saying is full atonement full covering for our sins and so that sacrifice that happened at the garden in the garden pointed forward to the sacrifice that would happen at Calvary and so this grace is established with the line of Seth all the way to the line of Noah but somewhere in there such destruction and depravity comes upon the world that God decides to judge and condemn and wipe out all of the world save Noah and his family and then he saves them in the same gracious fashion and he saves Noah and not just Noah but his household with him because of Noah's righteousness now not all of his household were saved eternally very quickly we see that ham falls under covenant curses Because he enters into great sin, breaking God's fifth commandment and dishonoring his father. And that sin breaks out all over the earth again. But Shem and Japheth seem to carry on the righteous line. And Shem's line goes all the way until we get to Abraham. And that's what we began looking at last week. God's covenant with Abraham was a continuation of this covenant of grace. He immediately starts speaking to Abraham in covenant languages or language, calling him to leave his homeland and to go to Canaan, where God is going to bless him and give him the land and multiply him and make him a blessing. That language of blessing and curses is covenant language. So he doesn't start a new covenant with Abraham. He just continues on the same one that was there with Adam and was there with Noah. And it continues on the same covenant of grace where gospel grace is given to God's people. And so Abraham responds in faithfulness and does what is right. He believes God and is counted to him as righteousness. But then God comes with some more unbelievable promises because Abram at the age of 99, his promise, a son. And he just doesn't see how this is going to happen. So God cuts a covenant with him. The same covenant, but he gives him a sign of the covenant. God has already said that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He took God at his word. But then he says, you know, I need something. I need something to know that you're going to give me what you say you're going to give me because I don't have offspring like you say I'm going to have. I don't have these things. So it's like he's saying the same thing we see in the Gospel of Mark where he says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And so God responds by helping his unbelief through cutting a covenant with him and having these animals slain where typically what would happen in these these covenants that were made back then in the ancient Near East is you would have both parties of the covenant walk through the slain animals saying, if I break the covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me, right? If I'm lying, I'm dying, right? Cross my heart, hope to die. I will keep my word, right? That's that's what God is saying. But what's interesting is as he cuts his covenant... Abraham was not required to walk through God walks through and says I will keep the conditions of the covenant I will do it and if I don't let death come upon me but I'm God and I can't die and I'm God and I can't lie therefore you can take me at my word when I promise I keep my promises and so that gets us to Genesis chapter 17 where we're going to see even more amazing promises and grace. So look with me at Genesis 17. We're going to go through Genesis 17 through 22, maybe. But I'm going to read through the first 14 verses of Genesis 17 to start us on. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. from any foreigner who is not, or from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and who he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is the inerrant, infallible all-sufficient, life-giving word of our God. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes to see the beauty of your word. Open our eyes to see the beauty of your gospel. Open our eyes to see the beauty of your glory. God, speak. Your servants are listening. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen Alright Notice it begins Genesis 17 verse 1 When Abram was 99 years old The Lord appeared to Abram And said to him So he's he's an old man There's, There's a reason God Has waited this long He's seeking to make sure that no glory Goes to man And all glory to God So God speaks to this elderly man And he says I am God almighty. Now that's that's how you start a statement. Right? God almighty implying universal dominion and power. Right? This is this is the same type of language we see in Ephesians 2. That this is a sovereign God able to save and equip, right? For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, God Almighty. For He has created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. Right? He does this so that no one may boast, so that he would get all the credit. It comes from his grace. And it's the same thing we see happen here. Right? This is not because you got it figured out, Abraham. This is not because you're mighty. It's because of my grace. Because I am God Almighty. I have universal dominion. I have power. Therefore listen to me. So he commands them. He says walk before me. And be blameless. How would you feel if God told you that? Come be in communion with me. Live in fellowship with me. And be blameless. It depends on how you hear it. So you want me to be perfect, God? I can't do that. But that's not what God is saying. God is calling him to obedience, but obedient faith, right? Abraham is righteous. He's blameless because he looks to God and takes him at his word. He believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. So God is saying, continue to believe me. Continue to take me at my word. Trust and obey. Listen to me and heed my word. Walk before me in obedience, but obedience that flows from a heart of faith, from a heart that trusts in me. Be in communion and right fellowship with me because I am God Almighty who is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. This this is not legalistic language. This is gracious language. God is graciously calling Abraham to walk in fellowship with him by grace alone, through faith alone. So he says, verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Well, God is already cut a covenant with Abraham. And even that cutting of that covenant was a a commitment of the same covenant he had already made with Noah and he had already made with Adam. It's this gracious covenant continuing on. So what God is doing is he's saying, let me give you greater covenant clarity. Just as in Genesis 15, Abraham believes God and is counted to him as righteousness, but then he's saying, you know, I'm kind of struggling with this whole belief thing, God, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? And then God cuts the covenant. Same idea here. God is strengthening the faith of Abraham through what he's saying. Because... There are going to be trials to come. There are going to be hills and valleys to come. And he's saying, look, listen to me. Let me give you greater covenant clarity. Marvel at my sovereign grace because I am God Almighty. And remember that my grace is sufficient for you. And me, in my sufficiency, I'm going to make my covenant between me and you. That is the covenant language that God uses throughout the Bible. I will be their God they will be my people right we see the the ultimate fulfillment of that in revelation when it says the dwelling place of god is with man right no more tears no more pain no more death or sorrow because we dwell with our sovereign god and when we see him face to face we are made like him in the new heavens new earth where there's no more sin and no more death right This is pointing forward to that. He's saying, I am your God. Let me make my covenant between me and you. I will be your God. But not just your God, I will multiply you greatly. He's already taken Abraham and said, look at the stars of the sky. Look at the sand on the seashore. I will multiply you greatly like that. If you can number that, you can number your offspring. And you can't number that. I mean, with all of our technological advances, people are still guessing about how many stars are in the sky. They don't know. And they're not supposed to know. What they're supposed to know when they look at the stars is God is big and He's sovereign and He's gracious. And this gospel promise is far bigger than we give it credit for. God will save a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and generation. And it will be so many people that us and our mortal minds and hearts and eyes cannot number them. This is a big, beautiful gospel promise. And Abraham gets that. In verse 3, then Abram fell on his face. This is a common response to God revealing himself to people. Every angel comes on the scene, the first thing they say is, Fear not. And people fall as if they were dead. But Abraham, here, by falling on his face, this is a, a rite of adoration and worship. He's he's not saying, God, I believe, help my unbelief. He's saying, God, I believe. I receive your gospel promises by faith. I realize I am old and helpless and only a sinner in need of your grace. And so I drop on my face before you in humble reliance upon you. I am nothing without you. And God says to him, behold. Behold. My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Behold, same covenant gospel is with with Abraham. This points back to to Genesis three again, right? Because he says, "I shall." uh, making my covenant with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations in Galatians 3 it says in verses 6 through 9 Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this covenant promise is the same covenant grace and the same gospel. That's what Paul calls it. He says this is the scripture preaching the gospel before Christ came to Abraham saying all the nations of of the earth, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when he says you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, that's what he's saying. It's not merely that a bunch of nations are going to come from you, but that the nations are going to be blessed through you. John Calvin points this out. He says, Abram was not the father because his seed was to be divided into many nations. though that happens, but rather because many nations were to be gathered together unto him, right? The nations come to Christ because of this promise. That's what's being promised here. That people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and generation are going to bow the knee to King Jesus and trust in God's grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone. They're going to be saved. They're going to be redeemed. So it's not just merely, there's going to be a lot of nations because of you, Abraham. But the nations are going to be blessed, as in eternally blessed, as in brought into covenant with God and being genuinely saved by grace through faith in Christ and multiplying and being fruitful and glorifying God rightly because of God's promise to you. That's what's happening here. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the gospel being preached here all these years before. And then he, he tells them in verse five, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So Abram, as we saw last week, was he was in Iraq and then traveled to Turkey before he got to Israel. It's called Ur of the Chaldeans and then to Haran. But that's where it's at. That's the location he was at. So he basically comes from an idol worshiping pagan land. And God calls him to leave all of that behind. To leave his father's house behind. And though much of Abraham's household comes with him. And he calls him to go to Canaan. To go to the land that God's going to give him and bless him with. And call him to to be blessed and be a blessing to the nations. And he goes. So Abraham is a Gentile pagan worshiper. Who's then called into covenant with God. And yet. He's got this Gentile pagan worshiper name. His name, Abram, means exalted father, which could be exalting his father or exalting Abram as some father who's meant to be exalted. In God's providence, Abram's wife is barren, right? You're not getting the glory here, Abraham. You are not this almighty exalted father like your name says. The glory will not go to man it will go to God so God takes his name and changes it and says your name shall be Abraham which means the father of a multitude of nations but we know how this comes about by God's blessing by God's grace and so God changes Abraham's name so that God gets all the glory because God is the ultimate father of a multitude of nations And Abraham is only a father insofar that he has covered and promised God's grace for that sufficiency. So even the name change is not meant to give Abraham glory, but to give God glory. So when we sing that old vacation Bible school song, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons have followed Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, turn around, sit down. That... That is ultimately giving glory to God, not Abraham. Because the point, Abraham's a 99-year-old man. He's not a young boy. And there's a reason why he's yet to have a child with his wife the way that naturally comes about. Because the glory does not go to Abraham. It goes to God, God Almighty. That's where he starts. God is sufficient. But because of God's sovereign grace upon Abraham, Abraham will be a father, and through his seed, the gospel comes all the more. But the promise is so great that it changes Abraham's name. But within that, we see this great gospel promise in Abraham that both the Jews and the Gentiles will be saved, right? That's that's what Galatians 3 says again. He says, the gospel was proclaimed, preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And then he goes on, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So those who are of faith, Jew and Gentile, those who believe God, those who take him at his word, are children of Abraham. It's not merely about ethnicity. These are not mere Jewish promises. This is a promise meant to take over the world. That all the nations would be blessed in him. Jew and Gentile. Abraham himself is a representative of us both. He started as Abram a Gentile, and became Abraham, the father of the Jews. But Paul says, no, he's the father of us all who by grace have faith. Father Abraham had many sons and daughters. And those of us who trust in the gospel are one of them. This is the promise. Look what he says, verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is amazing. This is a beautiful promise. God is making sure. That Abraham knows. He will keep his word. And he says not only will I keep my word. But I will keep it forever. It's everlasting. It will not be broken. <laughs> Nothing. Can separate God's elect. From the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right? Nothing can snatch us out of our father's hand. It's everlasting. God makes good. On his promises. And look at what he promises. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations what's interesting is this sounds a lot like what God commands Adam to do and then God commands Noah to do and what he promises him be fruitful and multiply be fruitful and multiply but he tells Abraham not just to be fruitful and multiply but he says I will make you exceedingly fruitful This isn't just going to happen by natural birth. This isn't just something that man can do, but it's something that me, by my grace, I can do. And that's what I'm telling you. I'm going to do it. This is sovereign grace. You are going to be exceedingly fruitful. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel that's what Galatians 3 tells us and that's what we see here that we are going to become partakers of this promise in Christ through the gospel Abraham is going to be exceedingly fruitful not just naturally fruitful but supernaturally fruitful now his own son Isaac is a gift of supernatural grace but even beyond that More grace is going to come where Jew and Gentile are going to get brought in to this amazing promise. So when he says exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. Now we would be tempted to look at that when he says I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. We'd be tempted to look at that and think, okay, this is again just talking about how, you know, God is going to bring nations about through the natural line of Abraham to Isaac and on down the line. But it's so much more than that. Right. through Abraham raising his promised child Isaac in a nurtured and admonition of the Lord and then Isaac doing the same and then his grandson doing the same and on just keeps going and then you get Christ and then through Christ all the more this happens in the new covenant people from every tribe, tongue, nation and generation are going to be saved and what's interesting is when we are saved we are called children of God and if children and heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Christ is Lord all; he is the king yet we are called heirs with him we are with him we are the bride of Christ so when it says kings shall come from you Yes, that means kings of nations surely come from the line of Abraham. But he's pointing to a gospel promise where Jew and Gentile, people from all walks of life, every tribe, tongue, nation and generation by God's grace through faith in Christ are made fellow heirs of the universe and thus kings and queens of the universe with Christ because of this promise to Abraham. A Gentile who becomes a Jew by God's grace. Beloved, the gospel that is promised is tied all the way back to Genesis, but it's going all the way forward to us today and will continue on until the final day when we inherit all things in Christ. C.S. Lewis said, you've never met a mere mortal. Everybody around you is eternal in one way or another. They are either headed to eternal life and eternal joy in Christ or eternal condemnation and sin. But they're eternal. But for those of us who are in Christ, not only are we not mere mortals, but you're of nobility because you're linked. You're united by faith to the king. And therefore you will rule and reign with him. And that's tied back to God's promise to Abraham. Which is tied back to God's promise to Noah. Which is tied back to God's promise to Adam. Which flows to God's promise within the triune Godhead. That Jesus would save sinners like us. None of us are mere mortals. And none of us are mere normal people. You will rule and reign with Christ. This is why the Bible speaks so often of reminding us of who we are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know why Paul lays that out? Because right before that, he says, Every time I seek to do good, evil lies close at hand, who will deliver me from this body of death, wretched man that I am? And he answers that with, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, Paul, remember, you're not merely that wretched man anymore. You are in Christ. And if anybody is in Christ, they are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're something different now because of grace through faith in Christ. So remember who you are. You're not a mere mortal. You're not a mere peasant. You are of nobility because you are in Christ. This this is what we see all the way back in this promise. Look how it continues to unfold. Kings shall come from you, and I will establish, that is, confirm my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. For an everlasting covenant. So, generations, offspring, this is implying God's, or Abraham's whole household is coming into this promise from God. And we'll see more of that in a second. But they're given an everlasting covenant. Interesting enough, Allison was asking her, kids were asking her about eternal life. And essentially they were saying, if we're mortal, like finite beings, how can we have eternal life? Because eternal implies like forever. Like it didn't come into existence at one time, it's always existed. That's the same thing implied here by everlasting cover. Everlasting doesn't just mean, oh, it started here and it goes on forever. It's rooted in eternity past and goes on to eternity future. And this is why we have eternal life. It's the same answer. God, who has no beginning, God Almighty, who is the ever-existing one, in eternity past, before He ever created, before time existed, set His love on us. Made a plan of redemption for us. This covenant is eternal because it's rooted in the eternal God. Your eternal life is truly eternal because it's rooted in the eternal God. Your heart, your heart is Voss, which is hard to say. Your heart, if you're from the South. Your heart is Voss. Fancy. He's definitely not from the South. He once said, the reason you know God's love for you will never end is because it never began. What? It never began because it flows from who God is, who never began. He has no birthday. He's always existed. Therefore, his mercy and his grace and his love for his people have always existed, rooted in an eternal, everlasting covenant that has always existed because it flows from God's existence. Who he is, is the covenant keeping God. That's what he tells Moses. Right? God, I want to see your glory. You can't do that, Moses. You'll die. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll kind of pass by. We're going to sneak a little peek. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to proclaim my name before you. And then he says, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness. You know what steadfast love is? Covenant love love. Love that goes on forever and started in eternity past. In fact, it didn't start. It's always been. Right? I can't get my mind around that. That's right. You can't because God's that big. So stop trying to put him in your box. Right? He won't fit. He is this good. That's why he starts with, I am God Almighty. You conform to me, I don't conform to you, right? And my promises are everlasting, rooted in eternity past and will carry on to eternity future. Starting with predestination and election and carrying on to glorification in new heavens, new earth with no more sin, no more death and eternal joy in Christ. This this is what is implied here. In this covenant, an everlasting covenant. This is what's interesting when we talk about a new covenant in Christ. If you want to be very dogmatic about that, you have to say, oh, the new got rid of the old, but the old was supposed to be everlasting. Huh? How does that happen? It's a new administration of the same beautiful covenant promises. God's everlasting gospel has not changed. It's just administered in different times and different ways. Just like we have different administrations in the White House that are supposed to be upholding the same Constitution. I know they they forget that, but that's what they're supposed to be doing. God doesn't forget it. He doesn't forget His promises. He doesn't forget His rules. He doesn't forget His covenant. He keeps it forever. And He's been keeping it from eternity past, and he will keep it to eternity future. You can take God at His word; He is God Almighty. Yeah. That's what He does. But look at what He says: I establish this everlasting covenant to you and to your household, to you and to your gener- to your offspring, to throughout their generations. Like He says in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse nine. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. There's that covenant love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You know how long that is? A long time. Generations, basically 40 years, (laughs) 40 times a thousand. I'm no mathematician, but we're getting there. The earth has not been around that long. This promise has not been exhausted. And it won't. Because that is merely a symbol to say forever. I will keep covenant forever. I will not break it. God does not break his word. It is an everlasting covenant. And it's to you and to your offspring after you. And then he says verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you. The land of your sojourners. All of the land of Canaan. For an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, this is where some people get confused and they go too literal. They focus too much directly on some land in the Middle East. The land in the Middle East is certainly being promised to God's people, but it's so much more than that. This is what Abraham knew in Hebrews. It, it talks about this. It says by, by faith, Abraham obeyed by faith. He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. That's why Romans, Paul tells us in Romans that Abraham was going to inherit the world. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. The land of Canaan is pointing forward to the new heavens, new earth, the whole earth, yet redeemed and free from sin and death. The earth as it was meant to be is so much better because of God's glory in Christ affecting it. This is what Abraham has promised. This is what he's going to give to Abraham and to his offspring for an everlasting possession. It's interesting to me that people that harp on this just being the land of Israel, they also think the world will be destroyed one day. And I say, well, how is this then an everlasting possession if it's going to be destroyed? It's pointing forward to something greater. It's a type and a shadow of the ultimate fulfillment of the promise in Christ. Which is what God tells us in, a, in verse, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And in Christ, you don't just get a land in the Middle East. You get all of it. You get the whole world. The whole cosmos. Remember, you are kings and queens in Christ. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. What belongs to Jesus? Everything. And if you are in Christ and with Christ, so does it all belong to you. Abraham was not merely getting a land in the Middle East. He was getting it all. And he knew that, which is why he was content to live as a sojourner in the land. Looking forward to the city whose foundation and designer and builder is God. right? That's what he's looking forward to. And that's what we need to remember as well. And God says to Abraham, verse 9, we're definitely not getting up to chapter 17. <laughs> God says to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay? He tells Abraham, you must keep my covenant. And then he tells us what not keeping the covenant means, right? Anybody who's not circumcised is going to be cut off for they've broken my covenant. So keeping covenant means trusting and obeying. Taking God at his word and listening to what he says and upholding, which is what Hebrews 11.8 tells us Abraham did. By faith, Abraham obeyed. So the condition of the covenant is not so much circumcision, not that they're saved through circumcision, but obedient faith. And circumcision is a sign of it, right? You see their faith, you see their obedience through circumcision. Interesting enough, in Romans 4, verse 11, Paul tells us that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. So Abraham is saved and counted righteous before he's circumcised, Yet he receives the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already has by faith. And he says his purpose purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. So circumcision is directly tied to faith. Right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God then gives him the sign of circumcision as a sign and a seal of his righteousness. Saying... Look, if you look to me by faith, you will be counted righteous. This is what this sign is pointing to. Now, you might think, how in the world does circumcision point to that? Well, it does in a few ways. First, circumcision points to the need for cleansing. Right? That there's something wrong with a man by birth. Circumcision happens to the male reproductive organ. And the reason is because it's telling us that man by birth is sinful and in need of a Savior. So from the very beginning, we're seeing that this promise to Abraham is not enough to be a son of Abraham according to the flesh. Right? This is what Jesus says later, or John the Baptist says later. Right? That God can make for himself, sons of Abraham, from rocks. It's not merely birth that does it. And that's what this is meant to show us, that you are born a sinner. You need cleansing. Reproduction, human reproduction, you know what that does? It just brings a bunch of sinners into this world. Right? Every parent knows it. Some of you are feeling it. That's what happens. But it points forward to a different reality. Not just that we are born sinners, but that we need a blood sacrifice. That blood must be shed to pay for sin. So that, that shedding of blood through the circumcision act is pointing forward to the ultimate blood that would be shed through Christ our Savior. It's pointing forward to that reality. But not only that, it points forward to a greater circumcision that must happen. The need for a circumcised heart, right? That that mere birth is not enough. You must be born again. You need the new birth that comes through God alone by His grace, through the power of the Spirit. And if you are born again, you will believe. Children of God cry out, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. And that is the cry of faith. The cry that God puts in our heart. When we cry out, Jesus is Lord. And we trust and we obey. We obey by faith, just like Abraham. So this is also showing us the need for obedient faith that comes through the grace of God, through the regeneration that he gives. And when all of this happens, it points forward to to us being cut off from the world and in union with God's people, God's covenant community, right? It's a sign and a seal that God has laid claim to Abraham. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You're mine, Abraham. I've made you righteous by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and now you are to walk in obedient faith to me. You are to trust me and to live for me. This is the same reality we see in baptism, right? But then something crazy happens. Abraham, I want you to do this, but not just you. You and your offspring and everybody in your household from those eight days old onward. Now, hang on, God. You said this is a sign and seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. Romans 4.11. What eight-day-old infant has righteousness by faith? Well, the Bible, we know some of them did. John the Baptist is saved and indwelt by the Spirit in his mother's womb. David, we don't know how old he was, but he says he came to know the Lord nursing at his mother's breast. It can happen. But that's not the point. The point is, whether they've been saved or not, God has laid claim to them. They are not their own. They belong to God and they are called to glorify God in their body. And they have been born into a household that has that covenant reality upon them. You are called to glorify God Almighty. He's laid claim to you and to your offspring. And not just to your offspring. Look at what he tells Abraham. He who is eight days old among you. And in every male throughout your generation, throughout their generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, or any foreigner, anybody connected to your household. Now Abraham's got a big household. He's got an entourage. We've already seen he's taken three hundred and something warriors to go battle to get Lot back, and they're all a part of this offspring. Now we'll see how bad of warriors they are when they're called to be circumcised at whatever age they were. But. But all of them, because they are connected to Abraham and God's claim to Abraham, are meant to have this sign upon them. And the sign does not mean that they're saved. It means if they look to God by faith, they will be saved. That's the reality. God says, you're mine. You live up to that by faith. And that starts from eight days on, eight days old onward. Right? Because he's showing Mere birth is not enough. You need to be born again. You're not born saved. But God, God can save anyone. Sometimes He does save people in the womb. But that's that's not necessarily going to be the reality for everyone. Most of us feel that, yeah, it's not. My kids were definitely not saved in the womb. But... He can do that. He does do that. But the point here is that it is a sign and seal of the covenant. Right? God so associates this sign and seal that often he says it is the covenant of circumcision. Right? The covenant is associated with the sign. But this gives us the pattern for the new covenant church and baptism. Right? That's what Paul's getting at in Romans 4 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. Right? All who believe. Belief is necessary. But this seal of righteousness is saying if you look to what this seal means, it means that everybody who looks to me by faith Will be counted righteous. That's what it proclaims. Now. There's a reality here. That is scary. Any uncircumcised male. Who is not circumcised in the flesh. Of his foreskin. Shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That doesn't mean. That you can't be saved. If you're not circumcised. But it does mean you're cut off from the covenant people of God. Same idea with us, right? You don't have to be baptized to be saved. But it does mean you're not in union with the church. Baptism is the typical way one joins the church. We're entered into the covenant people of God through baptism. We're joined to the many through that act. So it's the same reality we see here. Now... We'll deal with this further. I don't want to push it too hard. We'll deal with this as we get into the later covenants and see it unfold. But what you see here is God has laid claim to Abraham and to his offspring, to his whole household. And they are all called to respond by faith. This is the sign and seal of a covenant household. And what it's saying is that you are different from the world you've been cut off from the world you're in union with God's people and you are being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and you have a responsibility to respond to that by faith to obey by faith this is what you're called to do and if you don't you will be cut off and if you really don't you will be condemned and damned or stay in the condemnation that you're already in. You must uphold this by faith. But what we see is that in the old covenant church, the whole household was a part of it. Which is where the argument for paedobaptism comes in later, right? That God has laid claim to households. But that's what we've seen already in Zach. God laid claim to Adam and Eve's household, but Cain was in rebellion. But Abel was in submission. Seth was in submission. And on down the line, until you get to Noah. God lays claim to Noah and his household because of Noah's faith. Noah's righteous, not his whole family, but because of Noah's faith and his righteousness, God lays claim to all of them, saves them from the flood, but after the flood, Ham goes astray. He dishonors his father, and dishonors his heavenly father, and falls into greater sin and greater covenant curses. Ultimately, ultimate condemnation. But God had laid claim to him. He had all the promises there. He merely needed to trust and obey. But he didn't. He rebelled and he paid the price. The same is true for Abraham's household. What's interesting is the first child circumcised in Abraham's household is not Isaac, but Ishmael, who is not saved. God establishes his covenant with Isaac, not Ishmael. But the reality is still the same. Ishmael had a responsibility to trust and obey, to not shun his heritage, but to embrace it through repentance and faith. But he doesn't. He goes astray. Now he has many earthly blessings, but not the ultimate blessing of union with Christ, like God is giving Abraham and his household here. But what we see said this was never just a Jewish thing from the very beginning Abraham's whole household includes foreigners, slaves from other countries and yes his children but a whole host of people now people point out but circumcision is not quite the same as baptism, very true baptism actually exists in the Old Testament, we saw it with Noah Right? But Noah's whole household was baptized through the flood. But not all of them were redeemed. Baptism actually gets to the point later on right at the time of Christ to where it is what was being used to bring people back into covenant with God. So if people were in rebellion and they convert to Judaism they were baptized into the covenant. They were baptized into the covenant community so that they could then practice their Judaism with God's people. This is very similar to the baptism of John the Baptist, right? It's a baptism of repentance. I've been breaking covenant. I need to repent and get right into covenant with God. But what's baffling if you look at the Jewish Mishnah and the history of God's people all the way back, is infants were baptized into the covenant. The whole household was baptized into the covenant community. Now this is not the same as the baptism we see in Christ. And a lot of people will point out that they think the the promises to the offspring of Abraham were fulfilled in Christ. And that's why there's no baptism of infants in the New Testament according to the Baptist view. And that's a view that that you can prove for the Bible to a degree. And I respect it. I held it for years. And you could be genuine Christian and hold that absolutely. But my pushback on that is God stresses this is an everlasting covenant. And God never clearly says, now that we're in Christ, your children are no longer included the way they were in the old. B.B. Warfield points out, the argument in a nutshell is simply this. God established his church in the days of Abraham. And he put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church. And as such, they are entitled to his ordinances, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. So this is what we see established here. And what we'll see continually unfolded as we continue to walk through the rest of the Abrahamic covenant. God's covenant with Moses. God's covenant with David. And the new covenant in Christ. God has laid claim. To households. Because God. Is redeeming the world. He's undoing. The curse that came. Through Adam. And he's going to not only. Save families. He's going to save nations. He's calling. The nations to himself. In Christ. Which is what we see here right. To you your offspring, you shall be a father of multitude of nations. All the families of the earth shall be blessed in and through Abraham. And ultimately, it's not really in and through Abraham, but through the father that he points to. Right? His name means the father of a multitude of nations. Well, beloved, there's only one true father of a multitude of nations. Our heavenly father. And he saves the same way he always has. By grace alone, Through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the reality that circumcision points to. And that's the reality that baptism points to. Because it's the same gospel. Because it's the same covenant that has existed from eternity past. And will be held to until eternity future. God keeps His word. God is faithful. We can trust Him. And we are called to trust Him by repenting and believing And walking in obedient faith. Trusting and obeying Christ alone. Who has done everything necessary. For us to be saved. Notice the one requirement. Of Abraham here. Is to keep covenant. And the way he keeps it. According to Hebrews 11.8. Is through faith. That's the one condition. Take God at his word believe true belief—that that is obedient faith that includes repentance forsaking sin and obeying God not perfectly but you believe in a perfect Savior and so you trust him and you follow him and you know he's your only hope that's the reality that circumcision pointed to and that's the reality our baptism points to because it is the same gospel Christ is at the right hand of the father ever interceding for us as our great high priest who has done everything necessary to save us if we will but trust in Him. That's what living up to your baptism means. That's what living up to their circumcision means. Are you doing that? Are you looking to the God who keeps coming? He has promised with an everlasting covenant that He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will be with you always to the very end of the age. Nothing can separate you from him in all creation if you look to him by faith. May we look to him and live for him because he has given all for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beauty we see in your covenant promises. God, there's so much here. We have so much further to go. God, but we thank you for what we've seen today. You have laid claim to us. We are called to respond by faith. Would you help us to do it? Help us to believe your word and to trust it, to live in light of it. May we not simply believe in God, but may we believe you, God. Take you at your word and trust and obey. So God, help us now to respond in praise, but not just as we sing, but as we live, may we live for your glory because you have given us everlasting promises that we can bank everything on. May we do just that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.